Okay, hello everyone. Today's topic are the 2023 tech trends and the technology forces that are shaping tomorrow, which is also the title of the, the latest, the 14th edition of Deloitte's Tech Trends Report. And I am very pleased to say that I'm joined today by Mike Bechtel, who is the chief futurist at Deloitte and also the executive editor of this report. It's lovely to have you with us. Oh, Bernard, thanks so much for, for having me. Uh, all's well here in, uh, in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, looking, forward to, uh, looking forward to this new year with, with bated breath. Very good. So maybe... It would be great to start off by explaining what a, f a chief futurist is and what you yeah. do at Deloitte. Well, Bernard, straight talk is the best talk. And, and I'll <laughs> tell you, with a title like chief futurist, I, I found that audiences break neatly into two forms of leaning. There's the lean in crowd, like, hmm, that's going to be interesting. And then there's the lean back sort of arms crossed crowd of, oh, brother, here we go. And... Here's what I would tell you, um, that this is not snake oil. We, we see our job as helping our clients inoculate themselves against snake oil, right? And so, and how do we do that? Well, we chronicle what's new and uh, emerging, right? What's, what's new and next in tech globally with a mind towards figuring out the subset of those novelties that stand to become normalcy right, for the rest of us over the next couple of years. And so you've probably heard this old trope, the future's already here, it's, it's just not evenly distributed. Well, um, it, we take that seriously. Right? We don't have a crystal ball. We don't have a, a, a time-traveling telephoto lens. Uh, we take the wide-angle lens, the idea being that somebody's building our future right now. Absolutely. And I, I'm in exactly the same position. This is a, it's a, it's a great way of describing how, how I see my job as well. And mm -hmm. I, it's nothing to do with snake oil. It's about trying to understand what is happening in the real world, where the investments are going and how they will transform industries and, and businesses. Yeah. That's so, it. Yeah. Yeah. I was so maybe, maybe say there's a, a big difference between what's possible and what's profitable and uh, a, a little work chronicling, uh, a lot of things help, helps you find some patterns, yeah? Very true. Maybe we can start by you giving us a, a high-level summary of some of the key findings of the report just to, to set the scene. And happily. So Deloitte's been at this research for 14 years. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, Bernard, that we've, we've started to recognize is that futurists are secretly historians that by looking back at this 14 year journey to current, you, you start to see some trend lines and some patterns through the trends, right? Some signal in the, in the proverbial noise. Um, turns out that there's trend lines going back a good 160 years to the days of Babbage and Lovelace. I mean, the very first computer, their analytical engine built in 1840 something, or at least designed, spoke to a three-tiered architecture and this was in the 1840s. And they used, they used, you know, anachronistic farm language in talking about a reader, a store in a mill. 
that would process and store arithmetic like farm equipment might process and store wheat and flour, right? Well, the reason I start here, Bernard, is when you look through this really long lens of technology history, you start to realize that just about every technology innovation in business worth its salt has been an evolution as opposed to a revolution along the way we interact with, extract information from, and number crunch mm -hmm. data. And so in our Deloitte Tech Trends 23, we've studied what's new in interaction, in information, and in computation. And in doing so, what we've come to recognize is that for starters, the three, call them buzzwords du jour, okay, the metaverse, AI, and blockchain, that they're not a la carte buzzwords. Rather, they're what really meaningfully seems to be next in human-computer interaction, information management, and computation, respectively. So in, in summary, you know, finding, finding one is that um, resist the hyperbole, right? Resist the temptation. Our, our clients are resisting the allure of believing in AI metaverse or web three as, as hero or dismissing it as villain, they're starting to recognize that this stuff is a merely very useful hammer, no matter how shiny that can be used in service of business problems we're solving. Yeah, really good. I, I love that. And, and for me, it's a really nice way of putting it. We are somehow historians, but also for me is to, to dampen down all the crazy hype that comes with all of these trends suddenly it's all about the metaverse and it's all about crypto and web three and 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 is looking through all of this and saying actually that the, the hype is not warranted at the same time it will change our world it will change industries and this is what it means yeah that bernard i it, there's a tendency i i think whether you're a technologist an executive or, or, or a, a journalist to, to seek out changes in kind as opposed to degree, like fundamental revolutions, right? Because, because it, it, it gets you up in your chair, <laughs> yeah. but, right? But I, I, think, I think that, that, well, let me give you an example rooted in lived experience. I'm halfway through my transformation from geek to geezer, right? From, from enthusiastic optimist to lived experience realist who's seen some stuff. And I'll tell you, having been up to my ears and all things newfangled for a quarter century, a precious subset of all of the possible actually becomes the profitable. And so I, I think your point's well said, that, you know, resist the allure of hyperbole and just get into the practical utility of, of some of these new technology innovations. Very good. So in, in your mind, Mike, what was the most surprising finding of the, the, the 14th annual check report? Well, you know, I think one of, one of the things that surprised us the most this year, Bernard, was things that we picked up as regards AI, you know, Five years ago, our clients uh, here at Deloitte were wondering, um, 
you know, sort of in a Shakespearean manner uh, to use or not to use artificial intelligence, mechanical minds, digital discernment and decision making. About three years ago in our tech trends research, we chronicled the emergence of what we called AI-fueled organizations. Mm -hmm. The idea that properly placed AI could make the difference between merely keeping up and absolutely getting ahead. Well, here's the interesting and surprising finding this year. Turns out now that most companies realize that they, they are in fact going to be AI companies, mm -hmm. the limiting reagent the, the governor on their success and, and, and the value they yield from AI, it has less to do with which models they're using, which, which tools they're embracing. It actually has everything to do with the degree to which they trust it. And so our AI trend this year, we call it opening up to AI, learning to trust our AI colleagues. We chronicled stories from organizations you've heard of that effectively said, listen, we could have used any number of models to optimize this supply chain or to automate that. But we ended up going with the explainable, transparent models that might have been the littlest bit less performant, but because they were, they were clear, they were auditable, they were understandable, mm -hmm. employees felt comfortable with them because they could question their work. Right? Why'd you decide that? Oh, I see. Uh, good job, robot colleague. And so this idea of trust is the new frontier for AI advancement. I, I don't know that we expected that one heading in. Mm, interesting. So let's dig into this theme of trust in the report. You, you, talk, you talk about how the report focuses on the way that trust influences enterprise risk, for example, human computer interaction and data integrity. So how does trust differ when looking at technologies like AI versus blockchain technologies? And yeah. in other words, are there trust expectations where we remove humans from the equation? Well, I'll start with an example because cr crunchy case studies are always always the easiest to grok. So we spoke with American Airlines, right? A, a large multinational carrier. And they said, here's our problem. They had a group of human logistics experts right, that would work from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. every night trying to line up planes and gates. And the good news was, you know, they, they did a admirable job successfully every evening. The bad news was it was hard stuff to teach and train. And these folks hadn't seen sunlight in years, right? At least professionally. So they found an AI model that looked like it could begin to replicate and emulate that process. Here's where the trust comes in. In conversations with the teams, they recognized that foisting this model on the team would have them feeling like something was being done to them. That, that age-old feeling of, um, you know, the robots coming for our jobs. And so rather, they had that team of experts participate in the training of the machine learning models of the AI. And the takeaway, and, and I love this quote, is that people support what they help create. Hmm. Right? They, they, they begin to approach this inorganic colleague less as a critic and, and more as a creator. 
right? Is you know, my Gen X is showing, but I like to say more, more Spielberg, less Ebert, right? Mm-hmm. The, the takeaway is this: that AI model now does that work in about two and a half minutes every evening. But here's the fun bit: not only do the 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 folks right who, whose task, not job, task was replaced by that model, support it and take pride of authorship in it. But they're now working during the daytime on higher order problems. Mm-hmm. Specifically, what do we do with the inevitable rainstorm in Chicago O'Hare, et cetera? And so what we thought was interesting there was nobody's worried about deep learning this, decision tree that, uh, the arcane techno babble. It's how do we build an inorganic colleague that's worthy of our organic folks trust? Right. Crazy language, right? You know, the, the, lead, the technology leader of 2023 have, having to manage a workforce of organic and inorganic colleagues. But goodness gracious, that's where we're at. Interesting. So there's, we're seeing this new approach to validating data and transactions using public blockchain technology. Yeah. This trustless ecosystem as we refer to this uh, um, where we basically place the trust into the technology this is now evolving into this whole new web 3 world where do you see this whole area evolving into over the next 18 to to 24 months so you know bernard having worked in all things newfangled for some time I've never seen a technology with quite the image problem as blockchain, (laughs) right? I mean, think of the origin story 13, 14 years ago, right? Uh, A pseudonymous actor creating dark tools to buy dark things on a dark web. The whole thing felt anything but enterprise grade. And then we went into this middle, this adolescent period where blockchain showed up as this shiny hammer in search of nails. And, and I can't tell you how many clients I talk to of, what do you think blockchain? Well, we've got a pilot. We've got a prototype. We're using it for a thing. And the problem was, it, 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 you know, it, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And, and, and so, of course, it was tech-led, not needs-driven. And, and Bernard, take it from a geek. Technology comes last, right? And so what we're seeing right now at our clients is is the emergence of blockchain, triple ledger, and Web3 technologies growing up. And we know they're growing up because it's no longer about the shiny hammer. It's about the centrality or the primacy of the rusty nail, the problem worth solving. And so let me give you an example. Pardon me. We spoke with the state of New York looking to build a, a credential a, a digital proof of vaccination and, and, and proof of identity in a post-COVID age. What they realized was that in, in this raucous argument about data privacy, about who owns the credential, who has the data, et cetera, there was this recognition that no institution was as trustworthy as no institutions. AKA none of us is as trustworthy as all of us, AKA let's trust the cryptography. And so their new Excelsior pass architecture essentially distributes the trust and validation to a blockchain platform. Now this is where many times, right? We roll our eyes and say, okay, here comes the word immutable. 
But the point being, we don't trust any single counterparty because we're living in a post-trust, post-truth age. So let's distribute that, right? Let's distribute that onus on a, a publicly auditable blockchain. That's why we call it a trustless architecture because it's not you, it's not me, it's us. So this year's Deloitte tech trend in us, we trust decentralized architectures and ecosystems really says, listen, whether it's state government credentials, whether it's um, a group in Africa using this technology to ensure that the cocoa supply chain minimizes or hopefully eliminates child labor, right? Whether it's special purpose blockchains built to manage digital assets above and beyond the typical trading card. Um, the real takeaway is none of us seems to be as trustworthy as all of us. Yeah, super interesting. So when it comes to, to Web3, where do you see some of the, the biggest use cases? Yeah. So some of the biggest use cases for Web3 tend to be, and get ready, because I'm going to use some boring, old-fashioned enterprise IT language in a space that typically has anything but. <laughs> Web3 use cases tend to creep up when we have to do master data management or business process re-engineering between organizational boundaries. Let me give you an example. We spoke with a jeweler out of Hong Kong this past year called Chow Tai Fook. Now, speaking to their technology leader was a masterclass in the history of Web 1, Web 2, Web 3. And, and here's how it went. He said, listen, their problem as a jeweler was they were facing lab-grown synthetic diamonds on one frontier, which, you know, regardless of your thoughts about, you know, the, the, the world, you can see how that's, that's not great for them. <laughs> and then on the other end, the, the inarguably bad problem of blood diamonds, right? You know, unethically sourced um, cut diamonds um, typically coming out of Africa. Well, he said, here's, here's the deal. They needed a means of showing the world that they had the real McCoy ethically sourced. Now notice, there's nothing about blockchain in this story. Right? Mm -hmm. this, this is a business problem, right? Well, here's what they recognized. They said the web 1.0 answer, if it's 2003, the 2003 answer is we'll put up an about us page on the website. It'll say, trust us, we've been at this for 100 years, um, right? Because Web 1, right, Web 1.0 was about what you said about yourself. 10 years later, in 2013, we would have had a Web 2 solution to this problem. Because Web 2 is about what other people said about you, right? So we would have had Google reviews, Foursquare, remember that one? Uh, Facebook reviews, Yelp. But we learned in the mid-teens that that can be gamified and weaponized too. Mm. And so here comes a Web3 solution. They said, wait a minute. What if we laser engrave each stone and write that serial number, right? The laser engraved serial to a public blockchain co-signed by the GIA, the Gemological Institute of the Americas. Why? Because suddenly appraising that stone goes from a he said, she said to a blockchain lookup with color, clarity, cut, and carrot. 
So the idea being, do we trust you? Do we trust me? Do we trust the, the strip mall jeweler? Actually, we trust a cryptographic immutable record, not because blockchain, blockchain, but because it's a means of managing master data between organizational boundaries. Yeah, it's a great, 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 great example. Um, the for me, beyond Web three, the the number one technology, and you you touched on this that that will transform every industry and every organization, is artificial intelligence. In the report, you talk about a lot of different types of AIs, from effective AI to generative AI to general purpose AI. What will be the most surprising development of AI? Um, and, and what do you think? Do, do you think humans are ready? And what does it take for humans to be ready to work alongside and with those AIs? So, Bernard, one of my one of my technology mentors, and, and for those of your audience, you can see my, my office. I, I have him up here. You're Richard Feynman, you know, the, the, the quantum physicist, charismatic geek. Uh, well, one of my other mentors is Larry Tesler. Bernard, have you ever heard the name Larry Tesler? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Computer scientist out of Xerox Park. He invented copy paste. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, straight to geek sainthood, right? But Larry Tesler semi-famously said, AI is whatever computers can't do yet. And I love this quote because whether you're talking 1956 when the coin was, you know, the term was first coined and, and AI therefore meant advanced calculus or you jump to 1996 Right? When, when AI meant beating Gary Kasparov in chess or you know, beating Ken Jennings in Jeopardy or beating Lee Sedol in Go. Here's the, the thing we've seen, Bernard. Every time AI achieves a human-esque miracle, we don't, we don't give it the credit it's due so much as we move the goalpost and say, well, that's not really AI. Because we have this uniquely human pride of place where we want to be proud of our, of our mechanical creation, but we want to make sure that we're one step to the right, right? There's something Oedipal in there, I'm sure. But here's where I'm going with this. AI to date, right? The very cutting edge is something that's you know, somewhat nerdily we call cognitive automation. And it's the idea that five years ago, AIML systems were about decision support, business intelligence. They were a bit like C-3PO, right? They'd sit over your shoulder and they would tell you the odds of the asteroid field. And you, like Han Solo, you didn't want to hear the odds. You wanted help, right? Cool it with the math. Don't be pesky. Be helpful. Right now, 2023, the state of AI in the enterprise is more like Chewbacca quietly grabbing the controls and getting you out of harm's way, right? Dodging the asteroid, you're welcome. Well, all of the AI we see in the enterprise today, well, not all, most of the AI we see in the enterprise today, it tends to be the automation of things we might think of as STEM skills. The sorts of activities we used to have a young engineering analyst do as a task, 
now we have the robotic process automation do it. Bernard, what we're seeing is that AI is turning the corner from the engineering building to the arts and letters building, right? To the liberal arts college. And the reason I, I belabored us with the history of AI earlier was every time a new frontier opens, we dismiss that it will happen. And every time it does, and we simply move the goalpost. And so this year, we're already seeing ahead of schedule, if you will, with work in generative AI, right? The digital paintings and profile pictures that were all the rage, you know, a few, few weeks ago over the holidays. We look at it as alchemy, as, as, as witchcraft, as, as crazy and unprecedented. But remember, emerging technology is a series of evolutions, not revolutions. So what we're seeing is the automation of elements of human discernment and creativity. The takeaway for business leaders and for employees isn't, yikes, it's coming for my job too. It's look at these new must-have super tools that will make the next generation of creatives even more productive. And so, you know, when you look at something like a, you know, like, a, like an open AI uh, Dolly, right, or a, or a chat GPT, when, when you look at something like a, um, a stable diffusion, et cetera, et cetera, I think the really smart creatives are starting to say, this isn't taking my job so much as this is the new Photoshop. And I best get skilled in engineering great prompts because this is the new competitive battleground, moving from craft to creativity. Bernard, briefly, I'll just tell you, I've been having fun, not, not in an official way, but in a casual way, using these generative AI tools as a bit of a Rorschach test when talking to people to gauge their own creativity. Hmm. When you show the wonder of a, of a Dali or a chat GPT to a, a prospective colleague and say, ask it anything you want. And they come back with, show me a sunset on a beach. I feel like they failed a sort of screening interview, right? I want to see the guy who wants malevolent battles between Cheetos and, you know, Twinkies. And, <laughs> and, and so I, again, I think this is all about changes of degree and recognizing that AI isn't new, but there's always something new in AI. So what, what do you feel have been the, the biggest advances in AI more recently? And what do you expect to see over the coming years? Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest advances in AI we've seen at our clients is that it's beginning to enable a, a form of mass customization that, that we've never imagined before. Bernard, we, we chronicled in our Tech Trends report a, a year and a half ago, this idea called bespoke for billions. Hmm. And the thought was, you know, a century ago, when Henry Ford, you know, quipped, you can have any color Model T you want, so long as it's black. The idea was we were trading in the industrial age, we were trading scale for, for fit, hmm. right? You, you, you know, pick one as it were. Well, in an AI age, in a big data age, the more data you have, the more it helps your customization and your fit. And so one example, this year we actually spoke to the Saudi Tourism Authority. 
right? And again, back to this idea of a wide angle lens. What, what's happening over there, one wonders? Well, they're, they're able to use data to give visitors access to a personalized travel recommendation while ensuring that the users themselves have control over all the data that they give up. But what's so interesting there is here's a merely very useful means of using big data to say, here's what we know about you. Here's what we know about the cornucopia of options one has when they come to visit Saudi Arabia. Let's auto-magically put together an optimum itinerary as opposed to something that's, that's big, that's, that's binary, that's basic. And so I think a lot of the a lot of the AI innovations over the next couple of years are really going to be, you know, per our research, evidenced by um, scratching itches regarding not just efficiency, but about customization and experience management uh, by just connecting some dots that haven't otherwise been connected. Very good. Yeah, another technology trend that we have to talk about that I think has a, a similar reputation problem than blockchain is the metaverse. <laughs> We've seen huge investments going into this at the same time. People saying companies are inv investing billions. We haven't seen anything yet. Is this just hype? Um, so do you, do you see any actual use cases that are driving a, or making a positive difference? So, Bernard, I... Uh, I'm with you, right? The the other reputational pr problem child, uh, for sure. Uh, but for a different reason, right? Uh, we talked about blockchain's dubious origin story. M metaverse, metaverse has been promised, albeit under different names, right? Virtual reality, augmented reality, digital reality, extended reality. <laughs> I've seen versions of VR stuff for 30 years now. And so the problem with VR, AR, metaverse in, in, in our team's research, it's less to do with um, that it's uh, untrustworthy or, or folly. It's that we've been hearing promises that haven't materialized for a quarter century. But here's what's different. As bandwidth saturates and becomes readily available, like, you know, sunlight and water, as it were, at least for, you know, the, the, for, for, for most of us and hopefully all of us. As edge computing, right? N networking tends to get short shrift in terms of technology innovations, but the idea of 5G and associated advanced connectivity. So include Wi-Fi 6 and all the other emergent standards. As really great connectivity marries up with really great edge computing capabilities. GPU compute brought to you by folks like, but not limited to uh, NVIDIA. What you end up with is you're not tethered to a big bulky machine to get a mediocre experience. You're free to walk around in the physical world and have an amazing experience. And so what we're starting to see with, with Metaverse is that we're ready for a new chapter of the World Wide Web, a new chapter of the internet. Now, let's not confuse this with Web3, right? Web3 is about how we crunch the numbers and, and, and validate transactions. Per our research, 
the metaverse, think of it perhaps instead as an immersive internet. And again, futurists being historians, if you look back to the late 90s, everyone and their brother and sister felt compelled, like, we need a website, right? Toby, figure, get us a dot com. Mm-hmm. But here's the rub, right? Bernard, if you, if, you, if you think back, right? What happened in the dot com boom was everybody went and built themselves a digital house, right? A website. But only a precious few ended up really, really needing one for the essentials of their business delivery, right? And so in our research, what we found was with Web1, you really ended up having three kinds of internet users as businesses, right? Internet internet, uh, engagement strategies. There were the promoters who essentially used their website as a big business card that said, call us. Then you had the plusers, say restaurants, for example, that, that said, wow, we could add food delivery and a menu. We're better thanks to the internet. Then you had this third group, the pioneers, right? The hyperscalers that if not but for the World Wide Web, there wouldn't be them. Well, Bernard, so too, our research suggests it's going to be going with the metaverse, with the immersive internet. There's going to be a set of folks who Upon reflection, a couple of years from now, we'll say, you know what? We've really looked at this virtual world's business and we're going to put up billboards. <laughs> and that's a winning strategy for us. Right. <laughs> but then there's going to be a set of folks who say, wow, an enriched 3D immersive space gives us as, say, retail shoppers a chance to do virtual try-ons that are useful enough to plus the eventual in-store experience. And then there's going to be a third class of characters that we don't yet know or understand or have the ability to articulate that are going to truly pioneer the space. But on balance, most of the activity today, Bernard, it really tends to be not in the commercial world-facing side. I mean, gaming, sure. Talk about lucrative. Yikes. Immersive gaming is bigger than Hollywood. But most of the enterprise action is is behind the four walls of the company. We, We spoke to Exelon which is one of the United States premier um, uh, electrical utilities, right? Power utilities. Their technology leader, it was a great discussion, Bernard. She said, listen, my field technicians have to work on electrical substations. Have you ever been to one of those? I said, no. She said, you don't even have to touch them the wrong way. You look at those things the wrong way, you'll get zapped. And I said, well, tell me more. She said, well, the old way was to send folks on a perfect weather day to a substation to learn how to interact with and, and service that equipment. It was expensive and there were only so many perfect weather days. The intermediate stage, the, the, the not quite digital alternative was computer-based training, right? Opening up a computer-based training class on your laptop and kind of clicking and clacking your way through but she said it, it lacked the visceral moral hazard. You didn't get the spatial awareness it, and, and results showed it. She said, enter a 3D simulated virtual world where folks are getting the, 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 the sense, the feel, right? The sweat, the heart rate of don't mess up. And, and what's so interesting is it's, it's not only more cost effective, 
but it's also safer mm-hmm. and it's delivering the best learning outcomes out of the two, you know, the, 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 the set of three. So mm-hmm. in short, you know, metaverse as a um, revolution b- brought to us by any one company, that might be a stretch, mm-hmm. but virtual worlds as a way of getting through the glass, getting beyond peak screen and into a simpler way of interacting with digital information, sign me up. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I'm, I'm on your, I, I completely agree with you. Um, another tech trend that many might find very surprising to find in your report is the mainframe modernization. Um, <laughs> as as everyone is all about replatforming to the cloud, were you surprised to see this come up? And, and do, do you think the world is ready for it? To Because I, I, I think if you speak to most IT folk today, they would say we're interested in cloud, we're not really into mainframe, we, this is, this, these are not kind of the kind of skills we, we want to develop. So do, do you, and, and do, do you see this coming back? Do you think cloud, mainframe, cloud, where, where do you see this going in the future? You know, Bernard, uh, I, I appreciate your read on the surprising nature of this trend making the big six. Um, Here's what we've seen. I spoke earlier to the idea that interaction, information, and computation are these enduring sources of of innovation, right? Well, you've probably heard that term uh, first created in Silicon Valley about 15 years back, move fast and break things. Yeah? Well, per our research as Deloitte, here's what we've recognized. Startups can do that because they don't yet have things. There's this sense that that one can be disruptive when one isn't yet stewarding a household name organization, right? That's that's helping keep you know investors whole and employees engaged, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we've identified three other enduring buckets that tend to matter to established enterprises. They are. The business of IT, aka there's always a financial, cultural, organizational, procedural piece driving technology decision making. There's always a cyber risk and trust component. The Hippocratic Oath of IT, right? Do no harm. Make sure you don't bust anything. But then there's this sixth bucket, this, 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 this final one around core modernization. And, and that might sound boring to some traditional innovation types, but here's the punchline. You have to nurture what you have now as you navigate to what you want next. And so leaders who are stewarding large established success stories, they need to figure out what to do with this legacy application stack that they've inherited. Now, for the last 10, 15 years, the answer has been cloud, cloud, cloud with a side of cloud. Have I mentioned cloud? Mm-hmm. But here's what we've started to learn. Our clients have recognized that, sure, cloud makes all the sense in the world in terms of the, the quote-unquote illities, right? Scalability, versatility, agility, flexibility, optionality, also ITY words. Cloud's the only game in town. But that's a set of compute problems that do best with breadth and connection. There remain 
a set of compute problems? I found this on the web. There remain a set of compute problems for which depth and raw horsepower are the best solution, right? Banking transactions, insure tech transactions, medical insurance transactions. And so what we're starting to see is that it's not a, we have to get off mainframe story anymore. It's, huh, doing nothing with these great trusty but rusty legacy systems can be completely strategic if it's done with intentionality. Hmm. And so organizations are starting to say, hey, it's a both story. Let's continue to rely on these, these trusty systems that, that compute high throughput, right? Highly mission critical business process, but let's make sure that the physical metal they're on, you know, is, is ready, is, is, you know, ready for the future. Let's make sure that the API layer around them is able to interact with and play nicely with a lot of the cloud-based and AI-based and, and, you know, emerging technology-based solutions. And so the final thing I'd say on that is, we talked to IT leaders similarly who said, listen, um, it doesn't just stop with wrapping or extending our, our legacy mainframes. There's a new kind of mainframe coming to town that understandably isn't advertised as such. Rather, it's GPU compute, high-performance computing made by companies like but not limited to NVIDIA who will offer uh, world-class supercomputers by another name for those on-prem workloads that need a next generation of big metal in your own basement. Very true, very true. Coming back to cloud, because this is, cloud is becoming so important for, for organizations in terms of replatforming. We are now entering a world where we, have this mess where organizations have multiple clouds, they have um, hybrid clouds, um, they have on-premise, they have normal public clouds, they have multiple providers delivering various different solutions. And one of the trends you talk about is creating this abstraction layer to manage all of this. Uh, you refer to this as the meta cloud or super cloud. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to go into this and some of the challenges this, this might bring and, and solve as well? Yeah. You know, Bernard, it, it, this, this space, this idea of, of cloud, of meta cloud, in my experience, it's it's best it's best articulated via an analogy, and and here goes. Do you remember the early days of cord cutting from cable? Yeah, in the early days of of cord cutting, the early days of streaming, the value prop to go to streaming TV was was a bit of a no brainer, right? I could lower my bill by a meaningful multiple and get most of what I want in this simple interface. What's not to like? Well, if you think about how many of us have experienced the last 10 years of the streaming revolution, you now have two streaming services, then four, then eight. And what you realize are two problems. <laughs> One is 
you don't know which show is on which service mm -hmm. and, and it, it's confusing. And I wish TV were easy like it used to be. Mm. <laughs> and two, the cost arbitrage has, has sort of lessened because the, the, the added cost of all these streaming services is approaching what, we, what one used to pay for the big cable bill. Well, imagine we replace that, right? Cable and streaming with on-prem and cloud. We've got these individually brilliant cloud services offering best of breed capability for whatever we originally signed up for. Mm. But in a world where we now have eight of them, a multi-cloud environment, it's chaos and it's starting to become a bit expensive. And so per our research and, and my colleague, Dave Linthicum is a real, um, a, a, a real, uh, expert in this space and has been doing a lot of, a lot of research with, with clients who are facing this complexity hairball. There's a desire for what we're calling simplicity as a service, a control pane that sits north of all of that. Think of a user interface that for starters begins to offer observability, right? But that graduates into controllability so that you can have one elegant, and, and again, back to the analogy, uh, a, a TV guide of sorts into your various cloud libraries. This really seems to be architecturally where things are going to have to go because per our discussions with clients, the appetite for adding yet another cloud service, it's diminishing with each additional cost and recognition of complexity. What we need is one ring to rule them all. Not that we need to bring Lord of the Rings into this, but that's, that's really the idea. Very good. Makes complete sense. Another big challenge when it comes to digital transformation and the, the future of tech is bringing the, the people with you, having the right skills in your organization. Um, it will All of the, the technologies we talk about will hugely augment our, our workplaces. We will have to retrain people. We need to access the right skills. And this seems to be a challenge across pretty much every organization in every industry. Um, do, do you feel organizations are ready and are even aware of, of this, this gap in their skills? Are they able to fill this internally and build these and, and have these specialists in the organization who can take take this forward or what what do you what do you see successful organizations do do they partner externally do they do a bit of both how do they address this how do they make sure they have the right talent in the organization to to help them transform yeah you know the the last 20 years or so of of technology leadership, of, of technology talent uh, strategy, talent acquisition has really swung towards deep specialization. I, I remember in the late 90s where, you know, if you could spell WWW, folks handed you a laptop and said, you'll figure it out. <laughs> because the idea was it was, you know, a lot of this IT was new enough where you needed curiosity and aptitude more than you needed a certificate and, you know, a, a PhD and say, you know, Hadoop or something. Well, that's clearly changed, right? Five years ago, you'd talk to a technology leader and you'd say, what is top of mind? And they would say, talent shortage, right? I am on a treasure hunt for these rock star developers, these mythical 10X engineers, 
And the only thing worse than the, the heartache and headache of searching and not finding was the wallet ache of when you finally find one, you bring them on board only to realize that the emerging technology landscape has changed yet again, mm -hmm. right? And our research in this year's Deloitte Tech Trends, Bernard, we found out the average half-life of an emerging tech right now is two and a half years. And so perhaps the, the, uh, of our six tech trends this year, the one on the business of IT, of our six tech trends this year, the one that is interestingly gotten the most conversational traction actually is the one that has the least to do with technology. Hmm. It's about the people side. And we, we titled the trend flexibility, the best ability, reimagining the technology workforce and here's what we're seeing. We're seeing clients start to acknowledge that the race, the competition, the war for talent is proving to be a bit of a race to nowhere. And so the emerging strategy is don't compete for talent, create it. Go back to hiring for intellectual curiosity, aptitude, and attitude. And here's the deal. A lot of leaders have built a, a, a big binary, a false choice between deep specialist or shallow generalist. Turns out the winning orgs are engineering a third way. We're calling it the serial specialist. And the idea is, I'll give you an example, Mercedes-Benz, right? We talked to Mercedes-Benz in Germany. They're organizing their IT talent into what they're calling capability sets instead of traditional roles. Right? And they work with the, the auto unions and all that to make this you know, part, of the, part of the deal so that it's part of the job description that in three to four years, the job description will change. And so this idea of variety mm -hmm. as, a, as a feature, not a bug, this recognition that today's worker whether they're a boomer or an Xer or a millennial or a Zoomer, that they want to scratch a different itch after three to four years. So bake that into the job description. That way they spend enough time getting deep, making a dent in the universe. But right when they start to get itchy, good news, right? Your role is supposed to change again. And so th this is starting to cause great relief for our, 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 our client leaders because instead of a, a fruitless treasure hunt or worse, an expensive one, um, it's a recognition that we might have the heroes we're looking for right here should we give them the versatility they crave anyway. Mm. Yeah, again, I, I completely agree. And I would actually widen this out. I, I think it's absolutely relevant for, for, for our tech talent but it's also relevant for pretty much anyone in any job because yeah. <laughs> AI, blockchain, metaverse, all of these trends we've touched on will augment our jobs and they will continuously redefine what it means to be a creative, as you've already said. It, it will transform our, all our jobs and this flexibility, resilience, continuous learning, this attitude I think will be absolutely vital for anyone who wants to succeed in the future. Oh, Bernard, I, I couldn't agree more, sir. The, the, um, you know, I've heard it said, and I've heard the quote attributed to about 15 different people and none of them, <laughs> I can't, I can't find proof for any of them, but I'll just say it. Success means having better problems to solve. 
And I think today and tomorrow's successful employees, leaders, technologists, as you said, widen the lens, right? Human. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow's successful human wants to be rewarded for their success by getting new meteor problems to solve. Mm-hmm. And, and that mindset thrives in a world where good news, not bad news, good news, the robots are coming for the, the, the mucky tasks. Don't we, you know, I like to think of myself as a realist, not a optimist. Yeah. But I think the real way to look at automation and a lot of these emerging techs is to say good news, better problems to solve. Very good. Mike, what would you say is is the one takeaway that you would like business leaders or tech leaders to take away from the this year's report? Well, we've hit on the trust note, but but I'll go ahead and give that a give that a, a second beat, an encore. None of these technologies, no matter how shiny, are are the hero or the villain, right? They are merely very useful tools that can be used in service of problems worth solving, right? Take it from a geek. Tech comes last. Winners lead with need, right? Now, that's not to say tools don't matter. I studied anthropology many moons ago, and one of the things we learned in, in uh, physical anthropology was that what makes us us, not over the last 10 years or even 150, over the last 10,000 years, what makes humans humans is our facility with tools. Mm. And, and, and whether you're talking about a, a rough-hewn stone axe, right, or a piece of generative AI kit, uh, these are tools that we can use. Uh, for positive outcomes, so long as we're mindful uh, about their potential for misuse. And so thus trust, right? The idea that the theme of this year's report isn't that technology is suddenly trustworthy. It's that it's increasingly about making sure we're doing trustworthy things with that tech. That's Mm -hmm. a biggie. That's a biggie. Um, Very good. Yeah. And it's a a nice way to, to end this conversation. Um, I could, could go on for for another few hours. This has been super, super exciting, super interesting. Hopefully we can do this again. Um, If anyone listening to this uh, wants to ever rewatch this, head to my podcast or my YouTube channel, where you can also find hundreds of other conversations like this. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Bernard. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you.